Welcome to this fifth episode in the Project Edward 2021 podcast. I'm Neil Barrett and I'm continuing our series of discussions with highly experienced and well-qualified people who are sharing their thoughts on topics connected with safer road transport. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Emergency service vehicles are on our roads every day, making timely responses to all sorts of urgent incidents. Whether it's getting to the scene of a crime in progress, dealing with an illness or injury, attending a building on fire or any other type of emergency, and there are so many. The ability to make a successful blue light run can literally be a matter of life and death. There's so much involved in this mission-critical activity, driver training, equipment, legislation, other road users' awareness, and it's an evolving picture as best practice, technology, and the makeup of our road infrastructure is constantly changing. The three services which probably come to mind first, police, ambulance and fire and rescue, are not the only services who can respond to emergencies. Blood for transfusion, Coast Guard, mountain rescue operations, special forces responded to national security incidents, just some examples there. But in this podcast episode, we're going to concentrate on the three that are most seen on our roads, fire and rescue, police and ambulance, and talk about all of the things I mentioned and, well, perhaps some more. Joining me today are Roger Gardner, Manager of Lancashire Police Driving School, Advisor to the National Strategic Group on Police Driver Training, Kevin Day, Driver Training Manager at West Midlands Fire Service and Advisor to the National Strategic Group on Fire Service Driver Training, and Nick Lambert, Head of Driving Education at South Central Ambulance Service. Welcome all of you to the Project Edward podcast. Hello. Okay, well, let's get straight into it. I'm going to ask Roger, first of all, simple legal question, which service Services can use the emergency warning equipment. That's the blue flashing lights and the sirens. The, the main three are the ones you've come across. Uh, the, there's other bits and pieces, as you said, and a lot of others which the Department from Transport have, have authorised and are authorising in the next year to further use them. Perhaps one you didn't touch on was the military. Things like the bomb disposal, for example, uh, they can use it, but they have a, they have a speed limit at the moment. Uh, so they've got a stick. They can use blue lights and sirens to go through junctions and the like, but currently they have a, a limit on the speed that they do such at. And, and Nick, what are the road traffic exemptions that can be used? Now, there's a long list I've seen when I've been researching this, but there's some myths and there's a public confusion I've seen sometimes about what emergency vehicles can and can't do. So what are these road traffic exemptions? So the, most of our exemptions that are sat in law sit under three main exemptions, which are used by all emergency services, certainly the three that are represented today. They're uh, observation of a keep left and keep right sign. So that allows us to go to the offside of a keep left sign when uh, ordered to do so to, you know, to, to make progress through the traffic. We can exceed statutory speed limits. Uh, that's under the national government guidelines. We can exceed national uh, statutory speed limits. And the last one for us is treating a red traffic signal as a stop or give way. So that's often when you see we might creep across uh, the stop line uh, of a red traffic signal and once it's all clear and we're sure the junction's clear, that we can then proceed past that point. So that's the kind of the main three that sit in legislation. Um, there's some others that are particularly relevant for us that kind of sit under local agreements, which are things like parking in bus stops, parking on double solid uh, yellow, or white or red lines, parking on central reservations, uh, uh, stopping within a yellow box junction, things like that. But they're more under local agreements. They're not sitting under the, the, the three main ones. Oh, well, that's interesting. So there's a difference. There's quite a distinction between the government central legislation and then agreements that are made with local, what's that, counties, boroughs, that sort of thing. 
absolutely so a lot of them come under local sort of public orders under local agreements things like use of bus lanes you know uh, most uh, in fact all services nationally can use bus lanes when engaged under emergency that's a that's a local agreement um, but sometimes we're allowed to use bus lanes when we're not engaged in emergency you know we've got a patient on board and we're still taking them to hospital uh, it's, but it's not under emergency conditions and the local authority might decide uh, they'll allow us access to that because during peak times there could be heavy traffic which would delay in that patient getting care so there's often little different anomalies between different areas to, to everything that can be used but the, the three main sit in, in, in national legislation. Nick's, uh, Nick's doing a good job. Just to give you a bit of background, uh, Nick, if I may, annually there's around about 18 million 999 calls in the, in the UK, which is a, a staggering amount. And when you look at the police forces, the fire and you know, that is a lot of emergency response runs that have to take place. Yeah, that's a huge number. It is, and, and this, this is Kevin speaking now, and generally there is a... As you alluded to, Neil, in the introduction, there is a, a lot of misconception about what we can and can't do with regard to uh, legal exemptions. Um, some people do think, and this also runs to councils, not just other road users, that uh, once we're driving on blue lights, we're exempt from anything, uh, which, which is not the case. Yeah, and that's the thing. And I think that's where some of the, the confusion with, with people I speak to at events, um, that's where that lies. Now, while, while I've got you there, Kevin, obvious question to you, but I, I think, again, it's something that people will maybe be astounded to hear how much training is involved, you know, how much people have to go through before they can actually sit behind the wheel and drive a vehicle in sort of emergency mode. Now, I know possibly with the ambulance and the fire, you know, there's a high proportion of the time when the vehicle's being driven in emergency mode, whereas police vehicles you obviously responded to all sorts of different things. Now, just talk through Kevin how much training in, in your service is actually involved so for fire and rescue how, how much do people have to do before they can sit behind the wheel and switch the blue lights and the sirens on to drive a fire appliance which is a category C vehicle that's over seven and a half ton they've initially got to do a, a course for license acquisition if they don't already hold uh, the cat C license um, so that in itself is a week a week course with the driving test at the end of it and, and obviously prior to that they would have to do the the DVSA driving theory test and then at some point four to six months later once they've gained some non-emergency experience of driving the vehicles uh, they would attend for firefighters driving fire appliances um, a 10-day course two people on a course which follows the uh, the now what is now the published NFCC framework for drivers and instructors and for emergency response driving um, that has a final assessment at the end of that final independent assessment uh, and that, that's just for those driving the fire appliances so it's not it's not a quick process that's reassuring uh, nick for ambulances what kind of training is involved before people can uh, switch those uh, blue lights and sirens on so, so similar to Kevin, really, when they join us, uh, they already have to hold a category C1 license, uh, which is obviously an acquisition now uh, part of the license, which allows you to drive a vehicle above three and a half tonne, between three and a half and seven and a half tonne. So they've already done some some further training and, and they're uh, having to take a theory test, a DVSA theory test and things like that and back that up. So they have to look at sort of extended skills on that side. Then when they join us, uh, they can join in either two roles. I mean, for our emergency response side, uh, they come in as either an emergency care assistant or a paramedic, and they do a four-week emergency response driver training course. During that emergency course, there's often several theoretical exams that they have to sit. They have to do lots of studying. Um, the main study guide is based on Roadcraft, which is the Advanced uh, Police Driving uh, Handbook. Uh, and also, we've got a driver training advisory group book that's that's done for the ambulance service. So they have to study those books really, really hard. So within those four weeks, not only 
only are they doing a, a lot of practical driving. They, we average around 32 hours behind, actually physically each student behind the wheel, sometimes a little bit more. But also they have to do a lot of theoretical studying and understand the theory about what they're doing and the exemptions that they can claim. So again, it's quite a tough course and not everyone is successful in that course. Um, however, it, it, you know, it does help us to produce uh, some excellent drivers that, that are ready to tackle the, uh, the modern traffic really in the roads. That's interesting. Are you allowed to talk about your sort of first time pass rates for candidates? I, I certainly can. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, on average, we probably get around an, a 90 to 95 percent pass rate for our candidates. Um, so some candidates, they will then be uh, given a second opportunity, depending on how how much development they need. Um, but uh, generally, not all of our candidates pass. We do have quite a high standard. And the reason our pass rate is quite high is because we do a pre-employment driving assessment before they even join us in the ambulance service as part of an interview they have to go out with one of my team uh, who's a qualified driving instructor that will take them out in a in a van uh, basically uh, and they'll take them around and see about their, their their handling of this vehicle making sure that they're good with lengths of vehicle around things like curbs they can reverse under control and that they can put together a smooth and safe drive and don't you know breach any road traffic law instantly that gives us a, a, a narrowed selection pool when they come to us so they're already have been through some sort of selection process. I see. Thanks for explaining the context because that really helps understand why those pass rates are so good. There's a lot of preemptive work going on there. A lot um, of preemptive work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so, Roger, I suppose as well as response, your service, you've, you've got to add pursuits into the mix as well. Yeah, sort of. And, and pretty much a uh, basic image response course, uh, it, which the government had decreased what the level is, and it's going to come in, as I said earlier, in, within the next year, is it's around about a three-week course, uh, you know, give or take a, a little bit of extra, but that's what it's going to say. So, And that's on a basis of a three-to-one. So our students at the moment up and down the country, they might sit that uh, three-week course any time a year to two years within employment. Uh, some of the larger forces like the Met, uh, they have a lot of uh, officers that walk, so they might not necessarily have to all do the courses. But a lot of the, most of the other courses do, most of the other forces do those courses. And it's a three-week course based on three to one. Our success rate or pass rate on that is about 75% for that. And uh, after which they get uh, a development plan down to their needs. And we just wait till we get either one or two of them or two or three of them rather before we put a course on to make sure it's viable. They sit that and then they, they, if they do much response and they don't, they don't come across our path, i.e. they manage to stay within the confines of the law and not crash and dent cars and they don't visit our, uh, my door again, uh, we'll see them in every five years to keep that refreshed and topped up. Of course, the police being the police, uh, that immediate response course, that emergency response course is set for uh, low-powered response vehicles. So that's roughly speaking a, a brake horse power of, of around about 150 for those. And then, of course, if someone goes on to roads policing or armed response or some of these other roles, counter-terrorism perhaps, we go into the highest uh, specification of vehicles and, of course, the more brake horse power. And there comes in the advanced car course. Now, the advanced car course is a further four weeks. So they've got to do the three weeks initially, do that, go and get some road time, then go on, a, then go on another course for another f four weeks where they're taught high-speed driving skills. And we are talking high-speed driving skills here. We're not not—we're talking, you know, you know, providing traffic levels are safe and it's safe to do so. Uh, they'll regularly go the wrong side of three figures on, the, on that course. And again, the success rate on that is slightly lower than 70%, but the pass level is quite high. The standard we want is to have the best one, and it's not meant for everyone. And of course, once they qualify and they get that, and then they want to go on to the pursuit side of things, it's other courses where they have to do uh, pursuit-type courses. And 
As you can imagine, the refreshes for pursuit courses is far more, well, should we say less than five years. It's a, you're talking of two and three years. You can go on because uh, you'll have seen the royalty and uh, diplomatic corps being protected by police motorcyclists. You know, that's another skill that they've got to go on. It's a similar basis like that. There's uh, uh, quite a lot of courses we have, probably around about 20-odd driving courses, uh, which are listed in the College of Policing's program specification. And it all, every single course gives ratios, time limits, frameworks, and learning so that the same course can be delivered up and down the country no matter which of the 43 forces do it. I'm going to start with you, Kevin. I'm going to ask all three of you this. I just wonder over the last decade, so much has changed, but what's changed in terms of guidance and, and best practice as a result of sort of lessons learned from incidents or from changes to the road network or from updates to legislation? I mean, as I say, it is an ever-developing picture, but are there some things you can sort of pinpoint in the last decade or so which have changed the way you operate on, on emergency runs themselves, Kevin? Well, I can go back a few decades, but de- unfortunately, <laughs> but de- the, the last decade, yeah, there's been a lot of advances in, um, well, vehicle technical safety features for, mm. for a start. I mean, fire appliances many years ago were extremely basic vehicles, uh, but now fire services are using vehicles such as Scania's and Volvo's, uh, Mercedes, um, which generally come with all the equipment that a normal truck would have. So they're all fitted with electronic stability programs of one sort or another, which are a legal requirement these days anyway. That's made a big difference to the way the uh, trucks are driven. Yeah. And Roger, just I don't know if you wanted to pick up on that. You've been mentioned a couple of times there and you've talked about the legislation, but I know that's a big thing for you from when we spoke before this podcast. Yeah, very much so. Police driving started in 1937 and it goes way back. But that doesn't mean to say that we're particularly good at it after all those years. Uh, and I think because it's been going for so long, there's very little national uh, standards in over the years gone by before the College of Policing. You had things like the National Police Improvement Agency, Centrix, and other other things nationally which produced documentations. But there was never a central body that turned around and did some assessments and some standards to do it all, you know, to make sure that we got compliance amongst all 43 forces. That's not the case any longer. We now have a set of standards and uh, that everyone's pulling together in the same directions. Uh, there's some really solid uh, governance documents behind it, which make that the case. And, you know, senior managers, and by that I mean chief constables of each forces, uh, have to sign declarations that they are compliant now. So it's, and that goes on to the Home Office. So uh, we're a lot more comfortable in what we produce and the level to what we do it. And I imagine, I think you alluded to it there, that, that the added scrutiny you've got sort of internally within policing and inspectorates and that sort of thing. But I guess there's quite a lot of added scrutiny, Roger, from sort of social media and, and people being able to, you know, film things that are going on. And I suppose that scrutiny is there as well, isn't it? I actually welcome that. I don't think I could police anymore. Uh, and certainly, to a, I'm a okay. bit of a dinosaur these days in the days of uh, mobile phones <laughs> in your face all the time. I don't think that's a good thing for me. But these activities are up there and they put on social media and they looked at it. These are these are great. You can't you can't hide behind things. You know, if it's out there and it's happened, you've got to deal with it. And of course, video cameras and telematics and all the other bits that which are around now to to watch our performance of vehicles on the roads, but not just emergency service, but you know, fleet managers as well. It, that helps and assists. You know, because uh, you know, if it's a video footage or camera footage there, they can assist officers as well as you know 
because it tells the truth, doesn't it? Yeah. Nick, changes over the last decade? Uh, so big changes, really, for us. I think uh, certainly I've been in the ambulance service nearly 18 years. It was first where I did my driving course. And uh, A, the way we deliver driving courses has changed a lot more. The driving courses are a lot more learner-centred. In the past, I remember my first course, it was about get on with it, you know, get on up to speed. It was Speed was a, a main focus about making progress and, and getting there almost as quickly as possible was kind of the original uh, how it was. Our training now is very much learner-centred. We look at the needs of the learner. We adapt our delivery style to meet those needs of the learner uh, to get the best out of them. But we're very much focused on safe progress. The roads have changed drastically over the past 10 to, to 15 years. Um, there's a lot more traffic on the roads. Um, driving standards, uh, I think, have changed uh, dramatically. Um, there's lots of uh, evidence of road rage increases and, and things like that. So uh, part of our role is to try and mitigate that through our training of our staff so that our staff are able to plan what every driver is about to do next, try and understand that, anticipate it, and also then try and not put the vehicle into any potential or actual danger. Because for us, often we've got a patient in the back that could be quite poorly. We have a member of staff on their feet in the back, uh, which could be giving uh, life-saving care. So there's for us, it's real about safe progress. So it's, it's not so much about speed. And the other thing we often see now, and I, I'm a trained driving instructor myself, I still deliver driving instruction uh, to our teams I think one of the things we see now is is cars can go a lot quicker even you take a, a very small car an entry-level car it's still able to get round roundabouts quite quickly and, and that can often add challenges for us for making that safe progress um, you know people potentially undertake us um, they try and go on the wrong side of us they try and keep up with us so that's all challenges that we now need to prepare our staff to deal with uh, and to mitigate and human factors and certainly red mist is a huge uh, part of our training with our with our drivers now mm, interesting I was, I was going to come on to that actually talk about other road users you talked about your teams and how they're trained and you have got to have the right attitude as well as the right skills what can other road users do to help you on your emergency journeys? Now, I, I'm just talking about, I'll stick with you, Nick. I'm just talking about sort of the top three, really. If there were two or three things that you would want other road users to do that would be the most important factor in helping you make a safe progress, but also make quick progress as quick as you can, what would you want them to do? So the first thing I'd always say, Neil, is don't panic. And that's very easy to say, but I'm sure all of us even sat on this call with at some stage had an emergency vehicle behind us and has kind of taken us a bit by surprise and that instant uh, sort of adrenaline panic. Uh, but the first thing I'd say is don't panic. Second thing I'd say is continue making that safe progress unless that, until there's somewhere safe that they can pull over. So find somewhere safe to stop. Please don't mount curbs. Um, you know, uh, don't don't take any dangerous actions. Don't cross busy junctions, uh, red traffic signals and into opposing traffic. Just try and make a, a safe path for us where you can. And then and then lastly, for me, I think it'd be, it's quite clear. Indicate your intentions for us. Try not to stop opposite another vehicle because our vehicles are pretty big, eight, nine foot wide, including the mirrors. Um, so they're, they're quite wide vehicles. So they're pretty wide. So um, try and indicate what your intentions are that you've seen us uh, and make sure that they're constantly checking their mirrors i think one of the biggest things that we see now is we can be following cars especially on things like higher fast roads things like dual carriageways and motorways where perhaps the siren travel doesn't doesn't affect as it should do and we can be sat behind cars for miles on end where they've just not checked their mirrors have a good awareness of what you're doing focus on your driving don't panic and stop somewhere safe that we can safely pass you Thanks, Nick. And, and Kevin, would you, do you want to add to that? I would agree with everything that Nick has just said, uh, but also we do appreciate that almost all the road users out there are doing their best to help us all when we're trying to make 
what we call maximum safe progress. One of the bigger things with the fire appliances, especially, is uh, as Nick just mentioned, is the space. Uh, you know, if a fire appliance comes to a stop at a traffic light junction, then obviously it can't accelerate away as quickly as a car does. And we do get sometimes members of the public that don't appreciate that our trucks can weigh up to about 26 tonne in some cases. Uh, it takes a little bit more time and effort to get it going again. And as Nick said, you try and avoid pulling up opposite a parked car or especially opposite a bollard in the centre of the road. Um, people often do that uh, and then not leave us actual sufficient space to go through. Uh, what we do with the drivers is also practice something that we, we term as effective non-use. And by that, I mean effective non-use of the audible warnings. So yeah. sometimes we may turn them off in the hope that the other road users are just going to keep moving past whatever the obstruction is to then give us the space. Also, if you've got solid white lines in the centre of the road that we're not exempt from, to keep moving or to pull over off the roadway in a safe place, because, uh, again, our drivers may well turn off the audible warnings where we have a solid white line system and we want to keep the traffic in front of us flowing and moving so we can therefore keep moving. And as, as Nick said, you know, we, we train the drivers and we talk to them a lot about attitudes and behaviours. It's quite a big part of, of road craft has been for some time, but even more so nowadays because I think traffic conditions have changed immensely uh, in the last 10 or more years. Um, we have just noticing now that traffic levels are going back not quite to uh, pre-covid levels but all of a sudden now there's a lot more traffic out there and a lot of those drivers seem to want to drive quite quickly uh, and as nick said we get we get similar issues with people following us through hazards through traffic lights through queues of traffic or tailgating you might want to call that we know that, that most people are trying to help us but i think they need to appreciate we need time and space is there anything you wanted to add roger or does that cover it for you? The guys have really pretty much got it top and bottom and uh, we do the same thing. Evolution in the last 15 years has been traffic flows plus everything the two guys have said. Uh, I'd like to add in the about uh, electric vehicles coming in. As you say, the, these electric vehicles now have the acceleration of a motorcycle but perhaps the top speed of a, a Ford Fiesta so they're, they're very much different sort of hazard for us to deal with. But the, the main thing about it is that with our drivers and riders, is if we try not to have an incident on the one on the one to the one they're having, and I know that will follow with the fire and the ambulance service because you know you're already attending an emergency, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. So if something goes on, that means someone's now got to come and deal with the incident you've got you've just caused, and indeed the one you're going to. So it doubles up. So driving responsibility responsibly while under emergency response conditions is, is a big thing. Imagine what it's like in that car, uh, Nick, or that fire appliance or that ambulance. It's a noisy, busy place. It's a lot of information coming in uh, from radios, where you're going. There might be a, a calls of assistance from the scene because it might be a, quite traumatic about how long is it going to take to get there. All these pressures on the driver to get there. Consequently, human nature is you, you go a bit risky. You take some more risks. And it's getting our staff to sort of try and push those risks aside and to concentrate on what they're doing so they can get there a safely and then being able to deal with it when they get there it's no good arriving at the scene and being in such a state that you can't get out the car because you've taken so many risks and the journey that has been so fraught yeah it's interesting and, and uh, i just wonder you mentioned electric vehicles i just does the um does the advent of a i know it's early days but a high-end electric response vehicle being tested by the police service in the uk does that interest you at all the uh, it was yeah yeah I take, I take it you might be referring to the Tesla that was recently on the uh, there's a place for electric vehicles and of course the government has signed up to have 
electric vehicles by 2030 in, in all the emergency services, I think, uh, certainly the police. At present, the technology doesn't allow us, and indeed the bigger one is infrastructure. Um, so I'm going to move on and talk about incidents that happen on the roads themselves, because you know the roads are used to respond to incidents, but many of them actually happen on the highway network. And I'll start with you, Kevin. How, how do your teams work with other agencies when it comes to dealing with the aftermath of, say, a major collision and, and getting traffic moving again? I mean, between the three services and partners you work with, priorities are obviously different, aren't they? Oh, the priorities are different, yes, yes. Um, I mean, there's a lot more partnership working on collaboration now between emergency services than ever before, I think, especially with regard to more uh, serious and major incidents. Um, I mean, if you get an RTC on the roadway, the first thing we're interested in, first of all, is protecting our own personnel. Unless we can do that properly, then we can't take care of the people that are involved themselves in, in in the incident that's on the roadway. And then you're reliant, obviously, upon um, the police usually sorting out any traffic issues. As Kevin's saying there, it is very much a, a partnership where we all the emergency services get together. The first thing is is preservation of life without any shape or force. Scene protection, preservation of life. So if you'd imagine something, I suppose everyone thinks about the big crash on the motorways, because that tends to be some of the more traumatic ones that happen. And certainly... Dramatic in terms of they affect everyone in terms of uh, not being able to get to work, delays, picking children up from school and uh, bits and pieces. But we view the thing as scene safety, about trying to make everyone safe at the scene and space. They've got to have a lot of space. You talk about the fire service with uh, all their vehicles they have and, and indeed some of the Thunderbird type vehicles they have these days that come up, some of these uh, urban search and rescue vehicles to assist. The ambulance service and uh, how many casualties there might be and how many ambulances are going to be at the scene. And then you've got the added uh, prob- possibility of a of an air ambulance attending the scene and closing the motorways down even further. Nick, would you like to come in on that? Just to completely echo what my colleague's saying, you know, we've all got our own task when we get to the scene of a, of a sort of a major road traffic collision, but it is all about partnership. It is all about teamwork. Everybody plays to their strengths. You know, the fire are absolutely excellent. They've, they've got good documentation. They've got things like iPads and things like that. And fire are brilliant for us to having a couple of plans in their head. So, you know, for us, we can get there and we can assess the patient and depend on the severity. We can say to fire, okay, we've got plan. Uh, what's plan A? You know, uh, we've got some time to, to make sure that we do this carefully and do this right. Or we could say to them, actually, we need this patient out now, please. And they've got a plan to do that. So, uh, And they also look after our safety. So when they're cutting the vehicle apart, for example, if we have to extricate the patient, they're making sure that we're safe uh, as well as the patient safe so they look after our safety so we very much rely on them it's a a big partnership in working and exactly the same with the police you know the police are there not only to preserve the scene and you know preserve life but they're also there to protect us so whether that be fending off the road fending in the road um closing lanes and things like that so it it is very much a teamwork when we get to these incidents we all we all do our our own strengths but it is very much as part of that team and if that team wasn't there it would never work yeah and and there's other partners as well yeah i think one of you might mention highways england or the equivalent in the highways, other yeah, absolutely. nations yeah yeah and 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 what's the relationship like with some of those other agencies that you know where their focus is 
the road, managing the road, getting the road reopened. How, how, does, how do you handle that balancing act with them? They always understand that, that you know, the patient comes first after our own safety, obviously, uh, and they understand that we might have to, you know, there is always time constraints. We're always aware of, uh, of time pressures and, and financial costs for keeping roads uh, closed for a prolonged period of time. So we're all aiming to try and get that as part of our, you know, one of our priorities. Uh, it's not as obviously important as our patient, but that is one of our priorities about working effectively to get the road moving again and to open lanes again but we always have a great communications with people like highways agency just like the police they're there to support us and help us and they do an absolutely fantastic job in doing that and it, it to be honest I, you know i've been to a few road traffic collisions uh, in my term and, and it's always been uh, conjoined working we always explain we've all got different priorities but then priorities are all aligned when it comes to an emergency yeah that's good that's reassuring to hear roger what's the most important thing that and I'm looking for a short answer here if you can what's the most important thing that other road users can do or understand when they're approaching or if they're near the scene of an incident specifically on the roads to keep everyone and themselves safe well basically patience and safety yeah the yep. uh, it's you've probably seen it yourself and i dare say that you at times you might be sat there cursing under your breath it's the emergency services have got a job to do be patient and if something needs to get through try and give them a bit of space so patience and space. Kevin, views from your yeah, end? Yeah, I, I would echo that as well. Uh, and obviously, you know, these days people, as Roger mentioned earlier, like using their mobile phones to take film footage of whatever they can see. And I would say, please don't do that while you're driving. Obviously, it's against the law for a start. Apart from giving us space and time, they need to concentrate on what they're doing rather than um, taking more and more notice of what we're trying to do because all we're trying to do is uh, protect life. And, and get the roads open again as quickly as possible. Uh, that doesn't just go for road accidents. It's, it's all sorts of incidents. But yeah, and, is, and Nick, yeah. And in terms of the roads, Nick, um, yeah, what would you like people to do or understand when they're sort of approaching or if they're, they're at an incident that, that's happening on the road? I think the key thing is focus on their own driving. That's one of the key thing, you know, rubbernecking incidents. I've, I've nearly been taken out a couple of times where a vehicle, they're not paying attention to what's going on and, and therefore and other collisions occur. So focus on what they're doing. As Kevin quite rightly said, um, you know, uh, videoing is to me completely unacceptable. It could be one of their loved ones that we were helping and you'd like to think they've got privacy in that time. It could also be, you know, if video shared on social media, then potentially family relatives could find out that they've been involved in a collision before the police have had an opportunity to meet them and an especially trained family liaison officer has had the opportunity to go and see them and and work through that process and that's really important in that you know they're dealing with any grief or anxiety that comes with that um so yeah just give us the space and be patient i think is one of the biggest things i I'm recently had to uh, to block a road in order to give emergency care to a patient actually it was in a house and uh, and the, there was a car outside that was beeping their horn and shouting to us to to move the vehicle please be aware we 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 only ever block the vehicle uh, the road when we really really need to and and once we've assessed that emergency we'll always try and move the vehicle into a safer space you know um so just please be patient with us give us some time and and certainly don't don't you uh, share on social media anything that uh, you may get from the from the footage or from the vehicle yeah so, so it's the patience and space that the others have said but also that respect element as well respect for the scene and respect for the individuals involved yeah, absolutely. I think that's yeah. important. I think you just we all got remember we've all got loved ones, we've all got friends, we've all got family, and I don't think any of us would like to be in the position where we found out through social media that 
that my great Peugeot had turned. So uh, was on a journey that perhaps my wife, wife carried out with, had been involved in a collision. So I think we just have to remember that, you know, there's others to think about at, at that time. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty clear. OK, so I'm, I'm going to be finishing up now. I've got one more question for all of you. And, and we've been asking a lot of our guests on, on the podcast uh, this question. It's a bit of a magic wand question, I know. But it's this. If you could be Rhodes Minister for the day, which one thing would you change or do? One thing would you change or do to make our roads safer for you and your teams to go about your emergency work as well as for everyone else? Now, obviously, one of you is not going to get as much time to think about this. So one of you has to be put on the spot, though, and that's going to be uh, you, Kevin. Oh, thank you. Uh, Sorry. One thing. Yeah. Um, what one thing would I like to improve if I was a road minister? Overall, I think, as we've all alluded to, the overall standard of driving. I think because cars have got bigger, heavier, faster, I think in some respects the standard of driving generally is not as good as it should be. That's Do clear. That's my, no, that's my That's one clear. Thing. That's concise. That's what we like to hear. Nick, Roads Minister for the day. Oh, very tough job, I'm sure. It was lots of things to do with lots of different roads. Uh, for me, uh, it would, it's all about, you know, how we can make uh, the roads uh, fit for purpose. So lots more awareness on the roads. I think for me, education is really, really important. So uh, I would involve, you know, a big national campaigns about road safety, driving and things like that on potentially uh, the middle of Coronation Street or the middle of EastEnders or something. Something hard hitting at peak times to, to, to get people, I think, you know, to get people thinking about their own driving like we used to have those hard hitting adverts. And the second thing for me, and I'm allowed to, uh, is, is I would uh, invest heavily in roads policing. I think um, roads policing has been cut through the years. And I think um, sometimes our, the road standards reflects that. I think the driving standards, I think I would invest heavily in roads policing so that we mirrored somewhere like Australia, where there's a heavy roads policing presence to, to support us when we're out on the roads, but also to enforce those that aren't obeying the law. Well, that brings us nicely on to Roger. Last word to you. <laughs> Last words, how bad. Thanks very much for that, Nick. Uh, you saved me having to say one of them. But condition of the roads, uh, I think it's invest more in the, in the actual condition of the roads, making the road surfaces better in terms of potholes and uh, the like, and junctions, uh, a lot of closed junctions, you know, and making sight lines better so that uh, the public and our general, all our motors have got more time to see what things are happening. That would be nice uh, to have, but uh, again, the, I don't suppose the checkbook's limitless, is it? No, it isn't. But, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the magic wand question. So um, you can pick anything you like, but that's that's what you're going for. The sight lines, better design. Yeah, better design and uh, road surfaces. Yes. So much to think about there. Thank you. When it comes to emergency vehicles on our road, I would like to give big thanks to my guest today, Roger Gardner from Lancashire Police Driving School, Kevin Day from West Midlands Fire and Nick Lambert from South Central Ambulance Service NHS Trust. I'll be back in the chair for episode six in two weeks' time. If you found this episode of the Project Edward podcast to be of interest, please leave us a review. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comment on what you've heard today, please do join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Project Edward. You can keep up to date with our road safety activity at projectedward.org. The producer was Peter Baker. I'm Neil Barrett. Thanks for listening. <laughs>